Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of the Refuting Marxist Inconsistency, Capital and the TSSI series. This week we look at chapter 11 of Andrew Kleiman's Reclaiming Marxist Capital, where we dive into a critical appraisal of the empirical evidence that supposedly supports Marx's labour theory of value. I've used some tables and graphs as the graphic for this episode for those who don't have the book to follow along and there are also a couple of extra images linked to in the show notes. You can also listen along to the unedited episode on YouTube where you can see the sections under discussion. If you'd like to comment please do so on the YouTube channel. I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also make sure to like, subscribe and share and you can join me on Facebook or Twitter too. This week, I have two new Patreon subscribers to thank, Arcturtus and Clara G. The Mike McNair's Revolutionary Strategy Reading Group has started and is running every Saturday on the YouTube channel. If you'd like to take part or vote on the choice for the next reading group series, you can do so by signing up as a patron for as little as $1 an episode. Patrons also get the episodes a few days early and special plans are afoot for extra bonus Patreon-only episodes, so keep your eyes and ears peeled. Painful, as that may sound. Okay, to the discussion. Hello and welcome to episode 13. That's right, episode 13 in the uh, Refuting Marxist Inconsistency and the TSSI and the TSSI and the TSSI. We have today a very, very full panel. We just had Alex hop off into the chat to do some dueling as normal. We have the hardcores left. Emmanuel, say something. Bork, bork. Is Emmanuel wearing a, what do you call them, a shower robe? Um, yes, I am wearing a shower robe. My God, married life is really kicking off. Because, well. because fuck clothes, right? <laughs> Who the fuck needs them? <laughs> I hear you. Now, uh, secondary only to Emmanuel's debonair self is Derek. Derek, how's it going? Doing pretty good. Um, it's cold here in Utah. What temperature is it? Uh, Celsius. Probably negative eight. In the day, during the day? Yeah, yeah. God day. damn it, that's cold. Is there snow? Yeah, there's snow. I'm in my unheated basement, too. Lovely. Let's keep this going as long as we can. Uh, <laughs> Lexi, how are you? Whew, less said about it, the better. But you know what I'm ready for? Is some spurious correlations. That's what I'm ready here for, Tom. Today we are starting chapter 11. This is the last full chapter in the book. The chapter 12 is a kind of a roundup. So today this is this is the last meaty one we have to do. I'm looking forward to it. I think this is a great mm. chapter. What is this about? Well, let's do a, a little introduction. After all the things went down with the problems of the transformation problem and trying to get it working. Anwar Shaikh and Ochoa, two guys, went off. I think they're I think Ochoa's a guy. Anwar Shaikh is they went off and did some empirical work and trying to actually link prices to values. So this was the idea of trying to show that the amount of labor that's in a product or a commodity is linked to the price. Okay, now, all we've been doing so far with this transformation problem has been this idea of actually transforming in prices. So what these guys have kind of gone to do 
is kind of slightly against the whole Marx's ideas that prices and values transform. Marx would have said that price and value, the prices of goods, is not the amount of labor that's in them. Because there are rents and all type of things going on in the real world. So prices won't be exactly only the aggregate. So these guys went ahead and did it. And they got some important results saying, look, we've got 90, I think, 7% correlations between prices and values. So the you know, Marx was right, even though they're not really saying that's what Marx said. But Andrew's going to attack that and say, no, you got that all wrong. So that's what we're here to go through today. Does anybody have anything else to say before we kick in? Just that this chapter is really solid and deals with all critiques thus far launched against this chapter. It still holds up, even if you haven't followed the exchange that happens later after the publication of this book. One thing I'd say about this, it sort of demonstrates the way that there's a turn away from axiology and kind of trying to make scientific models like a, I don't know, like a logical proof or like a regular equation and the turn towards big data and econometrics and statistics. And while I'm a little more shaky, funnily enough, on the, on the stuff where you're doing, you're, you're treating mathematics like a logical argument, you're treating a model, you know, you're building a model like that. I'm a little shakier on that stuff than I am on stats and that kind of thing. And stats has such tremendous power to undermine undermine arguments and undermine causal claims. It's devastating. Basically, we're going to get into some statistical arguments here about why the research done by Sheikh and Ochoa and others falls apart. Okay, so let's read this bit. I wish to show in this chapter that the empirical defense is actually quite unsuccessful. This chapter is a is a departure from all the rest of it in that it's less of a deductive argument and more an empirical argument. Yeah, and I think it reflects a general turn in science, economic science, I would say, which good, good. Axiology kind of needs to die, even if I have some pet theories that I'd like to see translated. Only a good axiom should, should survive. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're, yeah, if your, you know, rational choice model, if your mathematical model can withstand statistical scrutiny, good then we might actually be making some headway. But other than that, you know. The fact about this, this uh, chapter is the, the charge that Marxism is parallel to praxeology is completely debunked by it, even though that's not what this right, right. And for those of you who don't know what I mean by praxeology, that's the Austrian right. uh, deducto axiomatic school of economics, where you basically like, we have this logical deduction. It is true in all cases. Suck it. I don't even have to do the math. Yeah, it doesn't matter about the empirical data. What matters is my... My deductions are right. Right. And this, to yeah. me, this, this proves that, no, the empirical data does matter, and it backs up the deductions. So Yeah. Right. When you're in a situation like that, you have a strong theory from two sides. And again, I've, you know, over and over been throwing out how much I love, you know, doing my little thought puzzles and logic games of creating arguments. I love that shit. And I'm, I don't, you know, want to leave it behind unnecessarily. So I'm willing to hang on to as much of it as possible. But really, statistics is a butcher's shop. So let, let's just read this bit. I wish to show in this chapter that the empirical defense is actually quite unsuccessful. The statistical methods employed by its proponents are unsound, and new empirical results compel us to reject its version of the labor theory of value. Even if it were a success in its own terms, it would fail as a defense 
of Marx's value theory, contrary to what some have claimed. Okay, so Kleiman, instead of calling what Sheik and these guys are doing, are a labor theory of value empirical work, he kind of calls it a labor theory of price. So what he's trying to show here is that they're trying to say that price is predicted by the amount of labor in the product. And what Andrew is saying is, Marx doesn't say that. He, what he actually says is, in the aggregate, that's true. But in the individual commodity, they can be all over the shop because there can be any number of reasons why the price is away from the value, whether it's there's a shortage of something, there's a glut of another, there are rents being paid, there is patents. There's all manner of things that go in there and totally skew the prices of commodities. For example, one very key one to think about would be oil. The amount of labor that's needed to take a barrel of oil out of the ground probably has very little to do with the price of oil. So much of it has to do with how mm. strong are the oil producing countries at, at maintaining, at getting a strong rent from the non-oil producing countries. There's probably only a very minor correlation between wages and oil price. So that's an example where this idea of the labor theory of price will fall on its ass. Not that I have any empirical data, but I'm sure that's correct. Let's read all of this bit here, because I think that all okay. of that is quite important. Schenck at first attempted to solve the, quote, transformation problem by means of an iterative step-by-step -step version of the usual simultaneous dual system model. This allowed him to argue that Marx's own procedure was the correct first step, Yet, once the process of iteration was completed, Scheich's solution, like the others, failed to preserve two of Marx's three aggregated qualities. Still searching for a way to upload the, quote, labor theory of value, Scheich turned to the data. He suggested that, quote, variations in prices across industries are dominated by variations in values. In other words, industry-level prices do not deviate systematically from values. If one industry's value is X percent higher or lower than another's, its price will be approximately X percent higher or lower as well. I shall call this the labor theory of price. Scheich and Okoa statistical results appear to confirm the theory. Subsequent studies using data from various countries in various years seem to confirm it as well. The correlation between prices and values a measure of the degree to which they vary together, has frequently been found to exceed 0.95, a figure quite close to the maximum value of 1. Moreover, deviations of prices from values have been found to be quite small. The average deviation is sometimes about plus or minus 20%, and often about plus or minus 10% or even less. Scholars who have recently reviewed this literature have been impressed by the, quote, strong evidence and, quote, robust empirical results that have been obtained. Well, th this is funny for me because I, I was working in a bank in Ireland in the headquarters and I was doing some research for them. And we were trying to roll out or trying to investigate using some data mining. And it's back about 15, 17 or 18 years ago. And I spent a long time trying to figure out how to predict when someone was going to close their bank account okay and like when i see this uh, this this statistic of of 95 as a as a correlation to me that rings an alarm bell straight away because i i created a model that predicted it 
we would close with about 95 or 6 percent accuracy and then after a this is a couple of months of work and then yeah after a couple of weeks later i then figured out that actually one of the variables i was including in the model was actually something that described that someone had actually yeah. closed their account and had been mislabeled so basically my model predicted 95 percent of the time when people already knew that someone had showed the account i spent like two months of my life working on that <laughs> The data was mislabeled. So it's like oh, when I see God. this 96 or 7 percent, 95 percent, I'm very skeptical straight off the bat. Well, it's kind of like when someone's trying to tell you how democratic Cuba is and they mention, yeah, the last election, which came in at 97 percent. It's like, OK, 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 that's too high. Nothing agrees like that. <laughs> or, or Japan that has a 93 percent conviction rate. Yeah. Is it because they're so good at sniffing out crime or? <laughs> And a confession rate of 95%, which is scary. Man, they're just so good at finding the criminals. I love doing OCD stats when, I, when I've when i lived in countries and knowing how those OCD stats are cooked. OECD or, or just your fondness for obsessively combing stats? Uh, OECD, although, yes, I do have a fondness for obsessively combing stats. This me is too. My, this is my Zen I garden. Don't know about me and my day job. A lot of what I do is just combing uh, aggregate testing data like when I'm not teaching, looking at interventions based off that. So I'm totally used to anything with that high of a correlation being, oh, shit. Um, so almost always you find that when you do the deep uh, qualitative studies on those things, you find that um, there's a factor that's been missed. So like Tom's experience would totally confirm my past experience with that too. I, there was a, there's been a study that was cited on best practices based off the school northeastern georgia that had 100 percent free and loose launch and a 90 like four percent success rate for the intervention mm. but then you discovered the reason why i had 100 percent free and reduced lunch is the nuclear power plant in the area pays for everybody's lunch <laughs> not because they're poor the uh, aggregate demographic of the area is about 50 to sixty thousand mm. dollars so it's a cook stat but like they were using it to punish like inner city schools in Chicago and Atlanta. And, and so th that, that doesn't seem directly relevant at all, but it, it is, it is a thing. Whenever you see a correlation that high, you, you really do have to be like, what's the confounding factor? Like, yeah. 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 Do you want to know a funny story is that even after I figured it out and I told my managers that it was essentially a useless model, they still insisted on rolling it out. <laughs> oh my God. Well, but isn't that the thing? Like for Derek's case, I can see why that the, the motivation is, is, is there in that nuclear power plant. That makes sense. There's a straightforward duplicitous cash value at work uh, with your manager. I can see that. You know what I mean? I can see the straightforward duplicitous cash value. Now, when we're starting to get into the correlations that we'll be discussing today, Yes, there are some academics I could imagine having, you know, like a sort of cash value of, of these, uh, of, of putting this forward. But, you know, not everyone that I talk to about these things that believe strongly, as some of the authors we'll be discussing today do, they don't seem to have that good a motivation, a good in the capitalist sense, good in the instrumental sense, the practical sense. Some people I feel like are taking this stuff on board without doing the requisite statistics, which, again, I find it hard to believe, but honestly, I find this entire messy debate hard to believe that, that we've been mm. going through in the book. So something is yeah. deeply wrong. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
And like, again, if you have a correlation that high, the, the risk that you're actually measuring the same thing, that your X variable and your Y variable are just two expressions of the same thing and you're not actually tracking anything, is that should like be your first working hypothesis that something's really iffy. Let, let, let's keep going. Okay, the LTP and Marx's theory. Okay. It has also been thought that the empirical results support Marx. This is clearly incorrect. The LTP's proponents acknowledge that it differs from Marx's own theory. It is worth recalling that neither Marx nor Ricardo argue that cross-sectional variations are negligible. Indeed, they both emphasize that at any moment in time, prices of production may significantly differ from values. So that's something that's important to say. That if you're a proponent of this labor theory of price, you're not a proponent of Marx's economics as Marx put it forward. Whether that's that can be a good or bad thing, whatever. But you're not saying that this is what Marx said. Right. And Marx maybe wasn't all that interested in, in this question about price determination, but he did have something to say about it, and it wasn't this. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, I think Marx was extremely in interested in it. Because yeah. remember, like... Yeah, because like I think Marx himself said that you know they can't if classical economics can't get over the transformation of prices problem, it's a dead art. In that respect, that's true. But I think I think the autonomist read of value theory is broadly correct in that what Marx really wanted out of this was to demonstrate to people <laughs> where profit really comes from and to get the political effects of this but he did care if it was true and you know he actually does solve a scientific question i guess my my point is is his motivations for solving the scientific question a lot of the people that stress how much of a critique this is i think they're right that that's what marks what was underlyingly driving marks but i think if if that to, to people conflicts with making a genuine scientific contribution that they don't really understand what drives scientists yeah, because Marx was also interested in like calculus and all this other crazy shit too. Yeah. So it's not like he didn't have scientific interests, even if he had political interests. He had some weird, weird, weird math interests that didn't work out well, actually. <laughs> okay, and here we have a passage that Emmanuel was referring to earlier. Do you want to read this paragraph, Emmanuel? Yeah, so the, the labor theory of price, of course, will hold that if you have more labor in one industry and less labor in another, then the industry with uh, more labor will have more value and, and therefore higher prices. But Marx disagrees. And so here is the quote that Kleiman is using. He says, a rather well-known passage in volume one of Capital says the opposite. Everyone knows that a cotton, a cotton spinner who, if we considered the percentage over the whole of his applied capital, employs much constant capital and little variable capital, does not, on account of this, pocket less profit or surplus value than a baker who sets in motion relatively much variable capital and little constant capital. So the baker and the cotton spinner might earn exactly as much or pocket as, as much profit, even though one clearly does more labor than the other with the same amount of capital advanced. So this is one of the things where the labor theory of price and the labor theory of value are very two very distinct theories. Okay, this next little bit is, is pretty good, I think. Thus, evidence that supports the labor theory of price does not serve to confirm Marx's value theory. Conversely, 
evidence that disconfirms the labor theory of price, such as the evidence I'll represent below, does not serve to disconfirm Marx's theory. His defense of the law of value rests on the three aggregate price value equalities, as we have seen, and he explicitly denied that price value differences in individual industries have any bearing on the law's validity. So this is important. Yeah. So if the labor theory of price, so what shaking these boys or cockshot of these boys are saying, if that's true, that doesn't confirm Marx. <laughs> and if it's wrong, it doesn't disconfirm Marx. They're just two different theories altogether. I think some of the some of the refutations of the previous critiques by uh, Baumbach and that kind of thing, and uh, that were focused on the prices of individual things, just the more of the macro level of, of doing price prediction on the macro level, in the way that you know a lot of bourgeois economics is interested in. I, I suppose that's kind of more what I'm getting at. That you know, yes, Marx's theory has implications for this sort of thing, but uh, this is not his research question. We're going to move on to 11.4 here, the spurious correlation problem. So this is going to get into the idea of, you know, is that 97% that you're getting, is that because you're actually including something that you shouldn't be in your model? Freeman called attention in 1998 to a fact not being sufficiently appreciated. Strong price value correlations may not be valid evidence owing to a problem known as spurious correlation. If a correlation between two variables disappears or is lowered substantially once we control it by the influence of a hidden third variable, that is, introduce it as a controlled variable, then the correlation is spurious. The word spurious is somewhat misleading, since the correlation is a statistical fact, but the point is that it cannot be validly used as evidence of a genuine relationship between the first two variables. Okay, so he goes on to talk here about, say, something like there's a well-known example in statistics if you're learning statistics to show somebody is what a spurious correlation is one of them here is between firefighters number of firefighters and the dollar amount of damage that's done at a fire so let's read this one the strong correlation between the number of firefighters at the scene of a fire and the dollar amount of damage that is done is a well-known example of spurious correlation the more firefighters at the scene the larger the amount of damage Yet it is invalid to conclude that the firefighters are causing the damage. What's actually going on, of course, is that a third variable, the size of the fire, is a source of the relationship between the firefighters and the damage. Larger fires cause more firefighters to come to the scene than small fires do, and larger fires cause more damage than small ones. If we control for the difference in the size of the fire, little if any correlation between the number of firefighters and the amount of dollar damage remains. So the original correlation is spurious. That's the nub of the entire chapter right there. Yeah. Is the size a problem? Yep. And just just a primer of one, what the, the word control means is pretty much that you remove that from the data. So like if we if we remove the sizes of, of the fires, well, is there still a relationship between F and D? If we remove the effect of the size. Yeah. We actually are including the size to remove the effect of the size. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. yeah. yeah, the problem when you're doing a when you're doing something like say between the fire and the, da and the damage there, you wouldn't have the size of the fire as a variable. So in your analysis, your regression or whatever, they'll be highly right, linked. Right. But when you include the size and it's able to basically, you can say, oh, this, you know, now we have this variable, you'll be able to see what all the effect is from, and then you can take that out of control for it and see if there's anything left over. Okay, 
Right. And if you controlled for that variable, you would likely see the opposite relationship that the more firefighters you get on a fire, the less damage. Unless they're being sloppy and they're like throwing shit all over the garden and, you know, pulling yeah, down yeah. pipes and pulling down your fence. Right. You know, right. And all or, that kind of stuff. Or unless they plugged it into the oil hydrant you know, instead <laughs> of the water hydrant. Yeah. It's always possible, I suppose. Yeah. Why is this so? Why is this so close and so similar to the to the water hydrant? This is cruel. I thought the O meant oh, this is water. Now, <laughs> so uh, in precisely the same way, size maybe a third variable yeah, that causes industry level values W and prices P to move together. If we control for the differences in size and little no correlation remains between values and prices, then the original correlation was spurious. Cockshot and Cottrell have argued that this is a false concern because values and price are themselves measures of industry size. When we say that an industry is large or small, we may well mean that the value and the price are large or small. Size is not some distinct third variable that causes them to vary together. Okay, that's a reasonable argument. I think that's a, that's a decent argument to make. But we'll see when we, when we get further on that that doesn't actually hold water. One problem with this argument is that empirical studies of the value-price relationship have necessarily used very aggregated government data. Okay, so let's have a look at this graph. I think this graph is very important. So this gets to the nub of what's going on in the data, I think. If we have a look at like the, the, the graph there, you see these tables here from one to nine, okay? But one is going to be the price and one's going to be the value. Okay, well, let's just say the one on the left is the price. And you'll see there that there's, the correlation there is there's no correlation. So basically, there's a whole load of prices going on and there, and there's, there's labor. So if these are nine different industries or different firms or whatever, there's not really a correlation between any of them, between their prices and their amount of labor that's going into them. But when we, when we clump these together, let's go and have a look. We leave industry one on its own. We clump two and four together, and we clump five and nine together. OK, and just this idea of summing these kind of random variables from a distribution, they're going to get very close to each other. OK, that's just a fact of statistics. Yeah, these are going to get close to each other. So we see on the right hand graph that's taken from the left hand graph where there's no correlation. But when we aggregate, there's a massive correlation. You can see the prices and the values in all of those are really quite close. And Andrew's going to make the point is that like this is very likely where all the correlation is coming from. It's you're aggregating things that actually aren't correlated. And when you aggregate them up, it's causing this correlation to appear. I like that graph. I think that explains an awful lot intuitively what's going on. On the left, you've got no correlation. On the right, you've got correlation. And it's just a matter of how you clump the data together and, and summed it up. OK, this example does not prove the price value correlations obtained from the data are spurious. It could be the case that pre as well as post aggregate correlations are strong. The example does demonstrate, however, that the reported price value correlations may be partly or even entirely mere byproducts of the aggregation process. Lacking access to disaggregated data, we cannot know whether this is the case or not. It is therefore necessary to eliminate any possibility of spurious correlation arising from aggregation and for this reason, if for no other, to control for differences in industry size. Okay, who wants to take this tautological problem? Because I, I, I liked, I like this argument. 
so we have kind of two problems we're, we're that he's going to attack to try and get at these. We've got this idea of aggregating causing a problem. And then we also have this idea of a, like a, a third variable. Lexi, do you want to give it a go? So this is why Kleiman thinks that industry size needs to be a control variable, is that uh, values and prices have a significant component in common, namely costs, the cost price. Uh, this is the analogous case here. Labor costs are the sum of after-tax earnings plus the taxes that are deducted. So right, labor costs defined as after-tax earnings and taxes, and then workers' incomes are their after-tax earnings plus any non-labor income. The correlation is very strong. However, when labor costs are big, then incomes are big, and when and small when they're small. But it's obvious that <laughs> labor costs and incomes are not two separate variables, and they're pretty much the same thing. <laughs> um, yeah. The third like, variable that causes uh, labor costs and incomes to move together is after-tax income, after-tax earnings. So it's basically making the point that like your income as a worker is very linked to the the labor costs of your boss, right? right. You know the after-tax earnings that they pay you, you get. And that's the core component. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So labor yeah. costs are linked to wages, you know, or income by workers' income. And if you were going to try and do a correlation between them, they're going to be massive. So similarly, when we do the analogous thing for prices, so we, we have the, these two beauties here. We've got values is defined as cost plus surplus, and we've got profits are defined as costs plus profit. Okay, so one is cost plus surface, another is cost plus profit. So we see here that it's the costs in both of them are similar. So we've got to control that motor. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty easy when you see the equations right next to each other. In both of the right sides of the equation, there's the same variable. That's exactly how it doesn't always appear in the statistical arguments, but that's exactly what's going on. It's a tautological correlation. That's what he calls it. Anyway, and I see why, because it's not a mystery that something closely tacks on with itself. It's funny because it's such a basic logical mistake, and yet I can totally see how you can make it if you're not really paying attention to what the variables you're defining actually are in the world. Because basically you're, all you're saying is labor cost and wage are price and value correlate because price is value and labor cost is wage. Yes, there's there there are there are some differences because they're not exactly the same, but the overriding definitional component is is there. It's funny to me because it's a basic fucking logic class 101 mistake. This kind of hurts. I mean, the, I took a high school stats class, you know. Then I learned this, and I remembered this. <laughs> I <don't> know, man. <laughs> but I also learned it from a literal analytic logic class. Like, right. No, that's true. I think if you show this chapter to a working statistician, they'll kind of laugh. 11.6, how you measure the size matters. So he's going to make a kind of a, a particular point here about the size of things that you have to get the right measure. Okay. So let, let's see what he says here. Imagine there is a strong correlation between the number of cars and the number of dogs in various cities, but only because the cities are of different sizes. There are a large number of cars and dogs in large cities and small number of cars and dogs in small cities. The correlation is, of course, spurious. Yet, if we control for the influence of size by using the city's areas as our measure, we may still find a strong correlation. 
although area is certainly a measure of city size, it's probably a poor one in this context. Population is clearly the best measure to use. This example shows three important things. First, the size, uh, the particular measure of size we choose matters. We must try and find the best one. Second, the best measure of size is the one that eliminates the most spurious correlation. Finally, although the correlation between two variables may not decrease substantially when inferior control variables are used, this does not make the correlation a genuine one, and it should not prevent us from concluding that the correlation is spurious. If the introduction of any third variable substantially reduces the correlation between the first two, then the original correlation was spurious. I, I would actually like to do as you said, Tom, and to like, you know, strip out some of the like uh, identifying features of this paper and just sort of do a study and show them to random people that are like working in stats or whatever, just in the industry, and just you see how they, you know, how blank author says this about blank, you know, and just see how the arguments stack up and see. I would just like to see. I'd like to see how that would actually play out. It wouldn't be good. Okay. Yeah. Um. Here's one final thing here before we get into the data and the computations. The above discussion of tautological correlation indicates that industry cost K is the best measure of size to use in order to eliminate any possible spurious correlation between prices and values. By using it, we eliminate not only the problems caused by aggregation, but tautological correlation as well. Yet even if my analysis of the tautological correlation problem is not accepted, we've we, we have seen that cost may still be the best measure of size to use. That will be the case if we eliminate more of whatever spurious correlation may be present when we use cost than when we use other measures of industry size. Okay, so Andrew is going to say he came here and he took 20 years of data to estimate prices and values, and he followed the same procedures as Ochoa's one, who was one of the guys who or I think is a guy who did it with Anwar Sheikh. The only difference I think really is that he did it with the TSSI definitions as opposed to simultaneous price value estimates. When Andrew did it, he actually got better results. 97% wasn't good enough to Andrew. He's very competitive. Let's have a look here and what happens. This is without controlling for industry size. The correlation coefficients were larger than any previously reported. The average of 21 years price value correlations was 0.991, so 99, 0.99, and they range from about 0.98 to 0.99. <laughs> Similarly, the various measures of the average price value deviation were smaller than any previously reported for the US economy and amongst the smallest reported for any country. Now, the mean absolute deviation, for example, ranged from between 7.9 to 9.5%, and its average value was 8.6%. So if you knew how much labor was in there, you were going to get the amount, they're going to get the price within about 8.6%. Uh, standard log linear regression of the industry aggregate prices and the aggregate values. The results were remarkably close to those predicted for the labor theory of price. For instance, each 1% difference in the industry's aggregate values led to a 0.9996% difference between their aggregate prices which is almost identical to theory's prediction. The value of the R-squared, the correlation coefficient, was 0.99, which means that variations in values accounted for 99% of the variations in prices. So that is like, that's incredibly accurate model, if it's true. Well, we see what happens here when he controls for the industry size. Now, 
he did two models here. Well, I, I think the reason why he did the two models differently was to basically show this R-square difference. This is Andrew going here now to describe how he built his models around 11.9, controlling for the influence of industry size. I used cost as a control variable in two different ways. First, whereas prior tests of the labor theory of price looked at the relationship between industries, aggregate prices, values, what I should call model one, looked at the relationship between prices and values per dollar of cost. I demonstrated that this procedure was legitimate since if the labor theory of price were true, the price value relationship would be exactly the same in the two cases. Andrew is, going, is making a claim here that is linked from one of his papers that we read. I think it's a 2005 paper. I read it yesterday, and it's simply a deductive statistical proof. So it's a by definition, what Andrew is setting up here, his model one is going to be slightly different. But by definition, it has to be true if the labor theory price is true. He hasn't included their argumentation in here, but he has in those other papers, and it's it's very basic. It's it's extremely basic. You know, it's about a three-line proof. And it's a deductive mathematical statistical proof. So it's not like there's any weirdness going on there. Model two, however, introduced cost as a control variable in a more typical manner by including it as a distinct variable in the regression equation. In this case, I looked at the relationship between the industry's aggregate price and values, but instead of treating aggregate value as a single variable, as prior studies had done, I decomposed it into cost and value per dollar of cost. So one of them is the relationship between prices and values per dollar of cost. And the other one then is just a simple, a simple regression equation that has the price broke down into cost, into cost and value per dollar of cost. Oh, Lord. So what we should be trying to predict here is that basically when we control for size, we should still be seeing a 99% R-squared correlation coefficient. Okay, so let's have a look at this table. So this table is a bit of a goddamn slam dunk. Anybody want to talk that section through? Regression results, 11.10. So let's have a look at the, the log WK coefficient. So we can see here that it's tiny. It should be predicted that that will be 1. And you can see that it's closer to 0 than 1. These figures differ so greatly from the value of 1 predicted by the labor theory of price that we can reject the prediction with a very high degree of confidence, at least 97%, 7.5% using a one-tailed t-test. Moreover, the impact of cost control values on cost control prices was never statistically significant at any tolerable level. When you take the costs out and we're just looking at the extra bit of value that's coming from the, the labor in this particular product to the extra bit of price that's been added above the cost, we're finding that the labor that's gone into this product, the added new little bit of labor, not the labor that's included in all the, not all the stuff that's in the cost, but just the bit that has been added in this production of this new commodity does not explain in any real large sense the amount of added price that's gone into that product so for example i I'm, i have a pair of shoes they've cost me 10 quid for the leather and all that rubbish i do say for example five hours of labor the price of the shoe when i sell it is 20 pounds my labor amount is not very correlated to the increase in price over the cost of the leather my five hours is not linked to the extra 10 pounds 
of the price in any good sense. Somebody else is, is making jumpers and their labor of knitting the wool, maybe that's only adding a tiny bit to the price and mine is adding a lot, okay? this table is saying here does that make sense and this is also kind of what what we would expect from simultaneous models as well because in in their models everything boils down to wages and technology anyway so once you remove wages from the equation we should expect these models to not predict anything on the basis of actually you know added labor adding value it's the cost price that's that's doing all the work so it should be the the the, the price of labor and not the value of the labor that would be yeah. the prediction okay let's see who's next here he says here he's going to get into why he did the first model so division of values and prices by cost so the first one that we've done here one this is the one where he's basically uh, divided by the cost okay so division of values and price by cost necessarily lowers the price value correlation because you're taking a math chunk of price out of the, the cost price out. But the correlation coefficient would remain positive and statistically significant if the LTP were, were correct, the labor theory of price was correct. This is what we talked about earlier where Andrew deduced a, a logical mathematical deduction of that this should be equivalent. However, whenever the log WK coefficient is negative or statistically insignificant, so is the correlation coefficient. So this is the difference between the R squared and this model that he built. Yes. It's saying that it doesn't explain any of the variation in prices. Yeah, exactly. But in the second one, it's explaining the variation in prices. Yeah, exactly. The 99% of the variation mm. in uh, aggregate prices each year is explained by the costs. The variations of values account for 0% of the variation in prices once you control for cost the way it does in Model 1. Yeah. Variations in costs explain 99% yeah. of the variations in, um, in yeah. prices. Yeah, pretty slam dunk. And the reason why he, he made the two models was one was going to get rid of the cost out of it and it should still have held. And what we see is that it explains nothing. And in the second one, he leaves the cost in there and you can see it explains everything. But the thing is, it's only explaining it because cost is in it. If the added little bit of labor that somebody did to their product, to their raw materials, was the predictor, so the added bit of price to the raw materials. So you do some labor and now your leather that was cost £10, when you sell it, it's £12. If that £2 extra was linked to the amount of labor that the cobbler did, your R squared would still be 99 in Model 1. Okay? And what it's saying is it's zero. So it's basically saying that the, the relationship between that added extra bit of work that somebody does is noise. It's probably some kind of random distribution, but which is bound by our aggregate qualities. If you want to talk about how it works in reality, it's bounded in some kind of statistical, mechanical sense, which we don't want to get into, but it's bounded by the aggregate equalities. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, I really like the, the, the last few sentences. The uh, yeah, talks about Model 2's explanatory power. And how if we just removed value 
from the equation completely, we would actually get a better fit. So if we just modeled it on cost alone, we would get an even better R squared, but because we're including values here, that's actually distorting it. <laughs> so it's actually removing predictive power rather than adding to it. Yeah, so that's pretty freaking damning. Thus, final one, contrary to the claim that industry's values are the dominant determinant of their prices, it's actually industry's costs alone that are dominant determinants. Once cost is used as a control variable, there is no reliable evidence that industry's values have any influences on the prices whatsoever. The strong correlations between prices and values are spurious, and the evidence compels us to reject the labor theory of price. And it's a slam on this chapter. That table, table 11.1, look at it. You got one model where you, you get rid of costs, and there is no correlation, zero. And you got one where there is costs, and you got 99% correlation. You're, you're not getting a 99% correlation. You're going, uh, getting an R squared of 99%, which is a, which is a measure of, uh, of effect. If, if, if it were a 99% correlation, then that would mean that each, each dollar of costs uh, equals exactly $1 of, uh, $1 of price. So that's, and that's just your R. Your R squared is uh, a measure of how much of the variance is explained by. Sorry, sorry, misspoke. But the, the gist is still similar. We're seeing that the variance, basically, this, the first model is showing, look, the labor theory of price is rubbish. And then the second one is showing you, look, look at the effect of including cost has on the explanation for the variance. Basically, the, the more workers you hire, <laughs> the, 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 the more expensive your product is going to be. Who knew? Right? I had no idea. <laughs> Right, Emmanuel, explain this graph to us then here. I'm sick of doing all the talking. What's he talking about here? Right, so this is about whether or not whether or not it means anything if prices and values are close to each other, right? So as we saw in the example of the, the cotton spinner, prices and values do not have to be close at all to each other in, in any industry, especially not in, in every um, specific firm. Whether or not they're close to each other isn't actually really uh, all that important, and you can see that here on figure uh, figure eleven point two, that on on the graph on the left, prices and values they increase together and they have a sort of one to one relationship, and thus you know a really strong correlation. But if you look at the right hand graph, there is no correlation at all between prices and, and values. It, it's just complete noise, but they are close together. Each point is very close to the other data point, but there is absolutely no correlation between them. Just because we've proved that prices and values are close to each other, that doesn't really tell us much uh, because that does not mean that they are correlated in any sense. So that's pretty much his, his point. Okay. I, I think that this is, um, that it's very interesting that the statistical evidence here backs up the idea that prices and values transform well at the very least it <laughs> it seems to demolish hopes for just doing an empirical like reach around pardon the expression for this logical problem the thing that bothers me is what if Kleiman is right about all these attempts to rescue marks and correct marks being bullshit and hopeless but he doesn't see some like basic er problem <laughs> you know what i mean because what do you mean? 
Well, stuff like um, stuff like fundamental Marxian theorem and you know the empirical defense of a labor theory of value, and maybe even simultaneous valuation in general. These are all attempts to get over some basic problem, and maybe the maybe Clement's a hundred percent right, and that problem isn't a real problem, but. I have a nagging suspicion that, you know, there's got to be something there. And the thing I'm worried about is that Kleiman is right about everything he talked about. And then there's one thing he didn't talk about or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, because this is, this seems pretty bulletproof. I don't know how you get around this. I'm willing to hear counter arguments, but there seems to be such elementary errors going on. It's, it's disheartening. (laughs) Well, look, I think that somebody could make that argument about price and value and be in good faith and, and want to show it. But right. the, but the problem is when you get the counter evidence in, you just have to get rid of your theory because it doesn't work. Well, you know, but you know how it works with it, with theories though. Like there's some level of commitment that people have to theories as they reconstruct them. You know, that's why I ever, you know, decided to try to see if the labor theory of value could work, even though I kept reading that it can't. You know what I mean? It's it's not like Popper, where there's the falsification event. And, well, now it's just false. You know, you have this sense, and I don't think it's also, I don't, I don't want it to be, at least, like Thomas Kuhn, where you just have these different paradigms and they sociologically wrestle. I like Lakatosha's kind of middle ground. I like the idea that you know you have research programs and that you have these like events that challenge the research program but as long as you can form coherent responses to them your your commitment isn't just ideological or it isn't just religious you know you have to have the commitment in order to try to rise to the occasion of each of these potential falsification events so you know i i don't fault anyone for you know having those commitments. You know, so many of the attempts to get around these things falls apart. And the ones that seem decent and that make sense, you know, I don't know, you just get all kinds of shit, a laundry list of things thrown at you if you try to bring it out there. And I guess what it comes down to is that I just have to increase my mathematical and logistical like confidence in order to, you know, proceed with that stuff in order to become more than like kind of, you know, skeptical, but kind of interested, Lakatoshian pluralist, you know, trying to, reaching towards a research program, but not knowing I can't really confirm it myself. Here, I mean, you know, my statistics are, are not that sharp, but the, you know, the logic seems pretty airtight. Uh, so I understand someone that would be trying to put some kind of patchwork onto this, put some sticky tape onto this, do an ad hoc kind of defense of this. I just don't see how they could get around the basic logical problem, the basic statistical problem, right? Cockshot and Cottrell did do a response to this, and they basically came up with some simulated data which they said disproved it. But when Andrew took their mathematics of how they created their simulated data, he proved mathematically that their data was negatively correlated and, you know, it's a mathematical proof. So, you know, I, I think that you can't look at this stuff and read the papers that are on it. Very difficult to maintain that as a theory. I can't see, I, d- I don't know of any other responses that hold any water 
So it, it you know, to me, that's a slam dunk. But it, it, you know, at this stage, we've gone through. I feel like so many different arguments with Andrew, and we've gone through so many different yeah. people that he's battled with. And every time we've looked into the primary sources and everything, he's always been fair to what they've said, and he's always won and disproved them. And that the the comebacks have always, to me, seemed to be haven't held water. I don't know what other people think. I don't buy that. On the mathematics in this book. Other than so, there are some mathematical examples I don't check out. No, the the the, the bits where the math was wrong, he said it, and they were so tangential. The book here, as far as I can tell, everything is presented fairly. There are a couple of this equals that, even though a said person says this doesn't equal that, where I actually think mm-hmm. we have to do more than we have done to conclusively prove that. I would think that's definitely true with Mosley. But his argument on Mosley specifics was sound. Maybe this is a discussion for when we do our wrap-up, I think. Yeah, I guess I guess the point is, is that like, if we could just scale it back to the empirical defense of the law of value, because yeah, I would need some time to really sit down and chew on exactly, you know, what, how could I possibly maintain nagging skepticism in the face of any of this? Because, you know, especially in this, I think especially in this chapter, Kleinman is clearly engaging the norms of bourgeois social science. And here I'm saying bourgeois social science is kind of a virtue. They can do math, you know, <laughs> And it's, it's just like, if, if he's presented the arguments fairly, this must follow, period. And it's very basic. That's the troubling thing about it, is that it's so basic. How can such a basic thing slide? And I, again, I get it why, you know, someone at the nuclear power plant would want to obscure, you know, oh, all the children are being fed in the area you know, and doing some statistical bullshit to keep that in order. I mean, I get that. That makes more sense. For some reason, the kickbacks of doing this kind of bullshit in Marxist academia or Marxist, you know, extra academic intellectual circles, it it just seems so marginal. How could it possibly, (laughs) how could it possibly remunerate one for the the elementary errors here? I I don't get it. It can't be this simple, I say to myself. But I'm looking at this. Let's read this last. Let's read the last paragraph here. The fact that price value deviations are small is therefore not evidence, valid evidence for the LTP, that the LTP is correct. All of the evidence suggests strongly that it is not correct. It is there not tenable to appeal to the data in order to sidestep either the allegations that Marx's value theory is internally inconsistent or the failure of mainstream Marxian economics to make the theory make sense. The interpretive and theoretical issues need to be confronted squarely and resolved. I think that's a strong end to that chapter. If this was a proper reconstruction of Marxist theory, and it, it gave non, non-scrupulous, non-tautological high correlations, then there would be a point here that, you know, okay, the exact logic of the, the exact logical consistency of the theory is, you know, demonstrates that we don't have the mechanism down. But at least, you know, at least it's basically like the scientific status is confirmed by other means. We don't have to engage with that in order to figure out whether it's a worthwhile enterprise at all. That's not true. We have to do the value theory to see if it's a val- valid scientific enterprise because there's no overwhelming 
statistical evidence that would change that epistemological landscape. I think one of the few ones that would back it up would be the rise in organic composition and the fall in the rate of profits. But they can't you know, even agree. They can't even agree how to fucking calculate that. Which is yeah, pathetic. I was about to say, like, I've never heard anybody agree on what the calculation parameters are. I'm being very well, serious in that. There are different ways of how you can calculate it. But, you know, you're trying to estimate the thing. You're not getting exact figures. You're trying to yeah. estimate it. Yeah, but that, 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 that leaves a basic research hole, though. If you're like, we're not getting exact figures of working off estimates, and we also don't agree on what the parameters of the estimates could be, then like and like i believe in the falling rate of value but i can't i can't get two people who believe in it to articulate it in the same way even people who are aligned like roberts and Kleiman, don't seem to actually do the same things with it and i'll give you an example of that Kleiman doesn't seem to buy roberts's argument on condrev waves well i mean neither do i yeah but like <laughs> yeah, but like he shows no evidence for country waves that's just an empirical thing but like when andrew say for example when Kleiman and roberts and freeman have different slightly different measures for how you calculate the falling rate of profit it's not that they all disagree with each other just some of them think that this one is actually probably this one they think is closer to the truth it's not like Roberts is saying, Clement, you're fucking wrong. That's totally wrong right. way of doing it. He's just saying, like, I think this one accurately reflects it a bit more. And they'll have a disagreement over, you know, whether you include circulating capital or whether you include money capital, you know. But they're all agreeing in principle on how you go about it. You know what I mean? Whereas if you get someone like Mosley, he'll say you should use current costs. OK, and that's an entirely different theoretical thing that they will disagree with. Okay, so there's a difference there. Read a lot of economics outside of outside of um, the Marxist economics, specifically outside of the stuff mentioned in this book. And I I keep on bringing it up because I'm kind of I kind of think is part of the issue the selection of what we're fighting against because there's all kinds of economists who who in the Marxian spectrum, historically speaking, who either must agree with this but don't but never came to the terminological conclusions that Kleiman did or don't agree with it at all, but aren't dealt with in this book because it wasn't within the scope of what was being argued, which isn't a fault of the book, but it does actually mean that we don't know, like the slam dunkiness of this seems questionable to me. And I keep on bringing up Mandel, and I'm gonna bring it up again, like because mm -hmm. there's there are tangential things about melt. Actually, when I've seen this stuff argued where where there's the greatest disagreement, it is over melt issues, not over TSSI. Mm. Right, so that's something that the triple SI and the new interpretation are also vulnerable to. But look, I've read Harvey, I've read, you know, I've been reading Capital, you know, that I don't understand. Okay. What's your point? Who are we well, talking the, about we have yeah. to read? Well, yeah, the point is is to read the alternative, like, uh, secondary literature on, on, on Marx. Like, to read the primary source, good. You, you're trying to you know, get a true handle on it, great. Derek just means, like, within this little subsection of the debates on the literature to get another point of view from the debates on the literature from Scheich, from Mosley, so from the people that, you know, come up and don't look like complete buffos. No, I'm not even saying that, actually. What I'm saying... Okay, what the fuck are you saying, Derek? One, I, I think you have a false sense of security in this because the fact that I can only find stuff, find people who absolutely agree with climate on everything to back up your points indicates to me there's an issue. Two, 
I still have been bringing this whole thing about the Marxist economic tradition that isn't mentioned in this, but from before the shaft or the base are tangential to it, did also do not either don't conceptualize this stuff in the same way, even if they agree with Kleiman, or don't agree with Kleiman. So that would be like the people in actual like Leninism and like the actual traditions that were doing value theory, I, either in like this in a Soviet state or in, you know, like the fourth international. Do I have right, you right? Right. So when, when you were looking at that work and I've been bringing it up, does it match or does it not match? It, that's actually a much more interesting test than did, did Kleiman win the debate he set out. Okay. He selected the debating terms. So fucking what? He, he he like he picked his opponents. Look, this is getting into like a roundup. So let's let's kind of go offline because let's do a proper roundup where we can discuss what we want to discuss properly. But I, I feel like we're just talking, just kind of rambling here. I don't edit it. <laughs> well, I, you know? I understand, but we'll have we'll have a fuller version of this conversation next time. Or maybe off air so that we can actually clarify what we want to talk about in our roundup episodes. So yeah, yeah. Structured. Yeah. Sure. Because yeah, I want to look yeah. for these discussions. I just kind of want to do them when we're prepared and we can have our arguments ready for each other. You know, I have read some of the stuff that Derek's talking about. And, you know, I, I don't have much more of a sense of this. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I would love to do this. I, I have a feeling that our conclusion episode is going to be a barn burner. Yeah, it's not just climate conclusions we're interested in. So with, with no further ado, I think we'll love you this and we will see you hopefully next week, depending on whether Emmanuel is in the land down under or not. Okay everybody, we got a group bye. Alright. Bye. 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 On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode, From Alpha to Omega. Thank you.